my friends, last week we talked about this, uh, this issue of the, the issue of salvation and how it's spoken of in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, it's, it's talked about, the salvation is talked about in different tenses. As a matter of fact, we looked at sort of three tenses, past, present, and future tense. And in that, we saw sort of the application of redemption in its sort of logical order, right? Um, that there's this order or this progression that a believer goes through from regeneration all the way to glorification. And the place that we get that from primarily, although not exclusively, is this passage from Romans chapter 8. It's a very famous passage, right? Verses 29 and 30. Uh, Sometimes this is referred to as the golden chain. So each part of it is linked. So uh, for for those whom he, meaning God, foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he he justified, he he therefore in the end glorifies or glorified. Um, Sometimes the kind of the technical part of this, if you want to think about it, this golden chain is, is it's referred to sometimes as an elliptical statement. Now that's a kind of a fancy way of describing this, but this idea of an elliptical statement, and I think it's important to think about it for a second when it comes to this passage, is this. So an elliptical statement is a statement um, where something is assumed, but it may not be explicitly spelled out. So what does that mean? Well, if you go back and read this passage, this, this verse, these two verses, <coughs> what's, being, um, what's being assumed here is this idea of all. So if I insert that word, it's not in the, in the passage, but it's most certainly assumed here. You could read this passage this way. For all those um, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And all those that he predestined, well, he also called. And all those he called, well, he also justified. And all those that he justified, well, he also glorified. So the all here is actually really important that Paul's here is, uh, is, is assuming in this. It's not, once again, not spelled out directly. But that all here is, gives kind of this glorious notion and idea of uh, that whatever God puts in place, that he will work out to the end. And there's nothing that's going to deviate from that. As opposed to saying some. If I insert some into that statement, for for some of those of whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And some of those that he predestined, he also called. And some that he called, he also justified. That has all kinds of really, not just unsettling implications to it, that has all kinds of unbiblical implications to it as well. So with that, we want to take those ideas and look at how the scriptures kind of carry that out, this issue of all, all those that he, that, um, he foreknew, he, he predestined, he called. So that's why last week we looked at the first part of that chain. I actually put that on the handout, what I went through last week that you couldn't see, so that was my fault. So I put that on the handout for this week as well. Uh, those steps or those links in that chain as well, and we want to expand on some of those as well. So, for example, last week we looked at election, the doctrine of election, predestination. Doctrine of, of predestination, sort of a much larger concept, and the doctrine of election, much more specific. And that's God's choice of people, his people, right? 
uh, we looked at the gospel call. And there's a difference between uh, an external call and an internal call. So we made sort of the distinction between that. Uh, we looked at the doctrine of regeneration, or what it means to be reborn, being born again. That famous passage, right, in John 3. Uh, we looked at conversion, which is kind of a coin that has two sides to it, faith and repentance. And both of those things need to be in place, faith and repentance. Not just issuing, calling someone to faith, but calling someone to have faith and to repent. Repent and believe, believe and repent. Paul uses those terms interchangeably in that. And then this really big term that I unfortunately zipped through last time, and the, <laughs> which, um, which was at the heart of the Reformation, uh, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay, so that in the sense that we are, we are made right, we have a legal standing before God, we are declared righteous, not because we're righteous, but because of the righteousness of Christ. So the doctrine of justification by faith alone is another way of saying the doctrine of Christ alone. So underpinning all that is the righteousness of Christ, who he is, what he's done on our behalf. Whereas we could have multiple lessons and, and countless uh, time that we could spend on that. But at the heart of it, that's the issue, right? That we are justified not by our works, but by the works of Christ. So this week we want to look at that last part of it. So there's 10 of these I've listed. And these, these last five we want to look at um, uh, quickly today. And that's the doctrine of, or the issue of, of uh, adoption, which I think, at least it is for me, it may not be for you, of all these things listed on here, election, call, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption is the one that hits us, I think, most emotionally and most that we can perhaps relate to in sort of an emotional level, or at least an experiential level. So I want to spend a little bit of time on the, the issue of adoption, right? And that means simply a membership in God's family. This is a wonderful notion and idea. It's not just a notion, but it's this wonderful reality um, that we have become, we have an identity and we have an inheritance, right? Um, and then from that, number seven on that list, this is still under the introduction, is that we are in the process of sanctification, right? That we are being conformed and this can um we are being we're growing and having this knowledge of christ we're being more and more conformed to the image of christ number eight is perseverance which has uh sometimes has been a controversy in church history as well so can you lose your salvation do you persevere to the end what about these warnings that we see like in um hebrews chapter six so perseverance is continuing in the faith or abiding in Christ, right? And then number nine, death, right? Which is also one that we know experientially as well. So that's where we go to be with the Lord. And it's really interesting how Paul looks at this idea of death. So we know the fact, yes, that death entered into the world because of sin. Um, but Paul also has an interesting look at it too, that we'll, we'll get to as well when it comes to the life of a believer. And then the last one, number 10, is glorification, where in the end we are receiving, we will receive a resurrected body, a glorified body, that we are embodied souls in that sense, that we won't remain separated from the body. And this is where Christianity is as very is as unique as it is amongst all other religions, in the sense that 
all other kind of philosophies, religions try to get away from the body. And Christianity is one where at the end we will be reunited with the body. Um, which I don't know if you've ever thought of it in that kind of that term in that way. All right, here we go. So this is uh, number two on your handout of adoption. I just mentioned this a few minutes ago. So adoption is a good thing to kind of consider when we think about adoption is this issue of identity, as I said a few minutes ago, and inheritance, right? Uh, and so, and this idea of adoption isn't a foreign concept to us, right? It's, and it's where the believer, who was once a stranger to God and an enemy of God, enters God's family and becomes a child of God. So identity and inheritance. And this isn't, once again, an act of the Lord, right? It's his free grace where he grants the right um, to all the privileges that he secures for his children, right? Um, Russell Moore is a fairly well-known, if you don't know of him, so he's pretty well-known in the, in the Southern Baptist world. And one of the things that he's known for is um, he's a very much an advocate for adoption. And um, if you've ever heard him speak or write on this topic, it's, it's really interesting because he even admits that at one point um, before, when he and his wife were first married and they were unable to have kids and later they, were, they had um, biological kids of their own, but they were considering adoption. His wife brought up the topic as well. And he was resistant to it. Uh, he thought that was one of the things, yeah, we can do that, but first I wanna have my own kids, right? My own biological kids. And he says in that, the Lord worked on him this idea of what it means, truly means in the sense of adoption. What Paul's really getting at, if you go back and read Ephesians or Galatians, even the book of Romans, what he's getting at when it comes to this issue of adoption, right? Because Paul's making that argument, like who's, who's in this family? Is it just excluded for the this children of Abraham? Or is there a larger idea here that's being made? And so when he, he adopted his two sons out of, a, out of an orphanage, I believe in Russia, um, before they received their sons, he said he got, a, he got this particular question asked of him all the time. He said it was an annoying question. And the question that the people would ask him is this, oh, you're going to adopt two boys? He said, yes. Well, are they brothers? And he said, well, yes. <laughs> Not in the biological sense, but in the inheritance and in the identity sense. And it, he said that was strange to people that kept pressing him on that issue. But are they really brothers? Do, do, they, do they share biological kinship? And he said, well, no, not in the blood sense, in the biological sense, but in the identity and the inheritance sense. They both will inherit the same thing from my wife and from myself. They both will have the same identity from my wife and myself. We will not treat them differently uh, from our own kids, biological kids, and even a, and even a distinction between the, these two boys. They are brothers, maybe not biologically, but in an identity sense and an inheritance sense as well. So it's kind of a good thing to think about in that, right, in that sense, right? So adoption comes after a sinner is converted and expresses faith in God. So we, we see this, right, in John 1, 112, where it says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, that's given, right? He gave the right to become children of God. And so the sinner, having been pardoned and 
con, um, considered righteous, constituted righteous in God's sight, justified, also becomes the recipient of sonship as well. So the justified sinner then is adopted into God's family. You and I are adopted into God's family. And you gain freedom and a father and all that in one moment, right? So sometimes um, if we're not careful in that, we impose our own view of an earthly father into the heavenly father into that. So I, some of you may or may not know, but I teach at at a private Christian school and I run into and talk to a lot of students. And just because those students go to a private Christian school does not mean, one, that they are rich, which is oftentimes the assumption, and two, that they come from a Christian family or a whole family. Oftentimes, both of those things are false. Um, And what I found is when talking to students, particularly students who come to you as as we have prep people come to you and they express trouble in their family, it's because um, they, are str- they have this family unit struggle, right? And oftentimes I've found in talking to them about their family and about um, who God is, and we're all kind of, if we're not careful, guilty of this, we will superimpose our own view of our earthly father, who may be a great dad or may be a scoundrel, but we will, if we're not careful, we'll impose that view of our earthly father unto our heavenly father, right? Uh, and the promise here of God is that we gain freedom and a father, a father who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who is working out this salvation that he first worked in you, that he's working that out to completion. And friends, he will never let you go in that, right? Um, this is this relationship we have, right? This is this relationship that we see that's, that's, that's carried out in the gospel. So the gospel is about facts, yes, right? This factual part of the gospel. But it's much more than that too, right? Um, It's about um, being brought into relationship with God. And from that, this issue of adoption, right? So if you're you're a Christian, um, I kind of wonder how that might strike you in some way. Because I kind of thought about that this this week as well. So in a fallen world where relationships are broken, divorce widespread, where all of our families in some ways, mine too, have been touched by divorce. Children are estranged from their parents, um, maybe even their siblings. Does it matter to you that you always have a father in heaven who loves you and cares for you, right? Who will never leave you or forsake you. That promise, I don't know why, that promise gets me every time. We have a father, and I had a great father, but a father who will never leave you and never forsake you, right? Um, So if you think about it, in the doctrine of justification that we looked at last week, it speaks to the relationship of the Christian uh, to God as one of lawgiver and judge, right? That in doctrine of justification, God is declaring you righteous. Once again, not because of what you've done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. But in the sense, what's called forensic justification, a declaring, right? So it becomes in the sense of a judge. However, and the doctrine of adoption, this speaks of a different relationship. Once again, a relationship of the Christian to God, not as judge, 
but to God as Father. Right? So we see that God does more than justify us, although that's a great thing. We need, we have to be justified. But it's more than just justifying us, right? He sees us or he gives us sort of this intimate relationship with himself as children of the Most High God, right? Which is a really, really, really um, big deal, right? So where's the, where do we find this in scripture? Really quick. Uh, and then some, some, some support for this. So first, in the love, the Father, once again, predestined the believer's adoption in Christ before the foundation of the world. So I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, Paul is pressing this issue of adoption in Ephesians, um, Galatians, Romans, right? So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? Well, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, remember we talked about that last week, right? This um, predestined love or electing love. In love, he, the Father, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. So second, we see the Father sent his Son into the world to do the redemptive work that's necessarily, once again, not only for our salvation, but also for the elevation of our adoption. So just as um, our redemption is the work, is a Trinitarian work, so too is adoption, right? It's a Trinitarian work in that sense. So Galatians, right? Ephesians, Galatians, Romans. So Galatians chapter four, verse six, Paul says that when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So adoption, in that sense, was in Christ's view as he went to the cross. I don't know if you've thought about it in that sense before. I'll say that again, that adoption was in Christ's view as he went to the cross. It's not the only thing, but that's in part, right? This is issue of adoption. And then number three in this, that the Father sent forth the Spirit, so there's this Trinitarian work, right, of his Son into the heart of the believer, and subjectively assuming uh, or assuring him that he is the Father's child. So this very famous passage in Romans chapter 8 speaks to this idea, where Paul says, this is 14 through 17, where Paul says, for those who, who are led by the Spirit, of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I don't know if you ever thought about that, that verb there of to cry which in some, tra- obviously in a lot of translations, it's, it's, it's translated that, it's issue of crying. But another idea here is that it's the issue of screaming as well, that we are groaning in that sense, that we scream, Abba, Father. Um, that, we, that this is the work of the Spirit to do that. That once again, if you go back to the issue of adoption, and we, in our experiential Uh, nature of this is seeing a child um, in an orphanage as well. And one of the things, I've had many friends who've adopted kids, and one of the things that um, 
that is a bit of a struggle at first <clears throat> is the, or the, the glorious thing of it is the first time that that adopted child calls his father, father, or his mother, mother. And that may come quick, or that actually may come quite later in that relationship. But eventually, that scream and that cry, that hurt, whenever that comes, um, is to say, dad or father, right? Um, and that, once again, that, that may come early or late in that adoption process for, for, for families who, who do adopt. And Paul makes that, I think, pulling out that point here as well. Uh, finally, the child of God, having received the spirit of adoption, awaits the final stage of his adoption when his, with this fallen mortal body will be redeemed. Uh, and it's corruption in, in our corruption, right? And brought to a state of glory uh, like that of Christ. So once again, that we are conformed to this image of, of Christ, right? We see this in the next few verses of chapter eight, where Paul says, we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the spirit, this goes back to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our fathers. That's why that idea of crying or screaming, I think, is related here to this idea of groaning, right? It's not just a happy cry. It's this, it's this screaming out um, to God the Father to, to help, right? That there is this relation, there is this recognition that he is our father in that sense. So really quick, so what are some implications in all this? Right. So what's some implications for the Christians uh, about being adopted? So um, I think one of them is this, that the fact that God relates to us as father means certain things for us. So, for example, it means that he loves us. So First John 3, 1, how great the love of the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's who we are. Or that he understands us. So Psalm 103, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembered that we are, that we are dust. Uh, this issue of adoption proves um, uh, that he has given us and that he will and he provides for us good, uh, good gifts. So this is in Matthew. This is Jesus, right? If you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Um, some other implications that he leads us by his spirit. Right? We looked at that a little bit a few weeks ago in the, the doctrine of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul says in Romans 18, or Romans 8, 14, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is how we know that we're, you know, we're being led, that we are producing fruit in that. Remember, we talked about last week the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But sometimes there's a, there's a phrase added to it, and it's a good phrase, that we, it's the doctrine of we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Right? We're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So what does that mean? Right? Well, we're justified solely by the righteousness and the work of Christ. But with that also, the fruit of that, the, what comes out of that is um, the fruit of the Spirit 
in that too. And these gifts that the Lord gives, right? We also know too how God relates his father in that he disciplines us and he keeps us on the right path. We'll get more to this in a bit with um, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, right? So in Hebrews chapter 12, that says that you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that it addresses you as sons, quote, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. So this is pulling from, from Psalm, right? Uh, and he punishes everyone who uh, everyone he accepts as a son. So just like an earthly mother or father disciplines, but disciplines out of sense of love. Right? I've told my sons that. You've been told that, right? You may have told your own kids that. I'm doing this because I love you. And they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> but I've tried, to, I've tried in those moments of disciplining my sons to tell them, if I didn't love you, I'd let you go your own way. And I, that I wouldn't care what you did but it's the fact that I deeply love you that I'm going to correct you, right? And we get this sense, and granted, we in our simple nature can take that too far and in different directions, but God does this perfectly. Why? Because he loves us. Otherwise, he would let us go our own way, right? Um, and I think that's, that's something that I've, ponder sometimes as well a lot this goes back to the thank to being thankful to what the lord has done he could have let you go your own way and he would have every right to do that um, he could have allowed me to go my own way but he didn't and it's not because friends because i'm so great it's quite the opposite <laughs> but because of god's mercy that he did this also in this that he makes us a family Right. So first Timothy, do not do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So in this sense, in a larger sense, yes, that we are a family. But even in the sense that you be seated, we are a family. Right. Uh, and family, sometimes we get on each other's nerves. We, we try to encourage one another, all the same issues of family that we see here, but even a stronger sense of family because we are united by the bond of the gospel. And it makes it, I think, an even stronger one, right? And we have a father, once again, in this family who will never leave or forsake us. And then the last part of this is that he makes us, um, he makes us an heir. Um, so this is back to Galatians, right? So you are no longer a slave. Um, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So an heir to what? What are we inheriting, right? Well, Paul addresses that, right? In 1 Corinthians 3, or Paul addresses the division in the Corinthian church where people were boasting and they're complaining um, in the stuff of this life. And so he says to them, um, Paul says, so then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So we become these heirs sometimes, and we may fight against that. So before I leave this, this doctrine of adoption, one other story um, that I think kind of hits to this is that... Um, I, as as you, you probably know, as I mentioned, 
uh, people who have adopted children as well and all the kinds of experience and the, in the rough parts of it. And sometimes um, how that, how that process of bonding works and takes place um, in trying to convince these children of, that these families have adopted, that they are indeed heirs, right? That they have an identity and an inheritance. And that may take some time to kind of, to, to, to kind of solidify and depending on how young the child is and how much trauma this child has experienced as well. Um, but one other story Russell Moore was, was talking about when they, when they finally did to go get their two sons out of this orphanage in, um, in Russia, uh, Russell Moore said that <clears throat> before they got there, he had this sort of romanticized idea of what that was going to be like. And his romanticized idea was that um, they would go in, the boys would throw their arms around their necks and they would thank them and they would cry and they would, uh, we're so happy to be a part of this family, take us away from this place. I don't know if you know much about orphanages, especially in Russia, but they're not, as an understatement, they're not the best place to be, right? They're, they're dirty, they're awful places. This is what he was, Russell Moore was imagining, right? His sons would wrap them, you know, run to them, slow motion, run and hug them, and they would all get in the car and they'd drive back. Well, friends, that's not what happened. And what happened was, he said, as they were taking their boys out of this orphanage and getting them into the car, those boys were screaming. And they were not screaming joy because they have two parents they were screaming to go back to the orphanage. And Russell Moore said in tears that he was trying to whisper in their ear, in, the, in, in their ears while they were sitting in the back of that car and still seeing and those boys reaching out to that orphanage, that you don't understand what I'm taking you back to. You have a family that's going to love you. This place is terrible. You have a family that's going to love you that's going to care for you, that will never leave you or forsake you. And in that moment, all those boys knew, and rightfully so, they were scared. And all they knew was that terrible place, that orphanage. And later, they began to realize, and it wasn't in that moment, it took some time to do that, but in, later they began to realize what true joy and inheritance and identity they had. Um, and if you ask them the day, they would never want to go back to that place again. Why? Because yes, it's awful, <laughs> but primarily because they're loved and they have a family. Friends, I hope that you know the father in that kind of way, not as a judge, but as a loving father. Um, and so this issue of adoption once again, is so important. Yes, it's not any more important than any other parts of it, but it's important because I think it hits us emotionally in a way that maybe some of the other parts of this chain we felt to allow it to hit us as well. Which leads us to, to number three uh, on this handout, right? So when a person is adopted into God's family, the old adage is that like father, like son, and we, be, we begin to see that how that kind of rings true and how that rings true is in the process of sanctification, right? Which is a big word, right? So what is sanctification? How does it relate to adoption? So sanctification 
once we become adopted and we assume this identity, right, and this inheritance, sanctification is this process that the Lord begins this work in us, right, which is a work of God um, that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. And if you think about it, um, sanctification is, has stages to it. It's a process. So before class this morning, I drew out, I graphed out my Christian life. Would you like to see this? Oh, good. I'll show it to you. <laughs> anyway, so I graphed out what my Christian life um, looks like. I don't know if you can see that. So here's time. Here's regeneration. I have not reached this point yet. This is glorification or, or death. Um, so I've got this kind of squiggly line going here. That's my life. Um, and then I drew an, uh, a line through it going up, right? So the goal here is this, um, that our lives as Christians, or at least my life, maybe yours is straight, um, but my life as a Christian is more like this. So there are times when, yes, I sin, or I may sin um, um, egregiously, or I may have a time where I'm not walking with Christ the way I should. This is my life, right? And I suspect if I were to sit down with you and you were to talk with me, and we're talking about our lives together, all of us in some way hit to this, this process. And friends, it is a process. But I drew the, the straight line through this to show that it is a process where we are, it's actually increasing, right? We are becoming more and more into the image of Christ. Not because you and I are great people that we do this in and of ourselves, but this is the work of the Lord in our lives that we, that we are because of this good, loving, caring, heavenly father who has adopted us is conforming us into this image. So I don't know if your life looks like that. I suspect it does. Uh, and sometimes we get very discouraged in that. I do as well. And one of the things that comes out of this is, how could I be a Christian and be right there? Right? And so it becomes really convicting in that. So if you think back a couple of weeks ago when we did the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, um, how do you make the distinction in those times here where you feel a sense of guilt over what you've done or what I've done? How do you make the distinction? Because Satan also makes you feel guilty as well, right? So sometimes we cloak that in the idea of being convicted. So what's the difference between being made feel guilty and being convicted? Like if I'm right here. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you. That's happened to me a lot. So how do we, what's the reconciliation of that? Well, I think the scriptures are pretty clear on that, right? That the spirit convicts us always to bring us back. It is this reconciliation. Whereas Satan will convict us, but not as a reconciliation, but as destruction. Right? So he will push you further from God. Friends, I don't know if you thought about that too much, but if you find yourself here, are you being pushed toward God or away from him? Because our sin will always want to push us away from him. And the spirit, through this conviction, will push us toward him. 
this is why a good definition for a believer, a Christian, is a repenting sinner. Because we use that term a lot in our culture today of Christian, and we kind of throw that in a huge category. We clump a lot of things underneath that. And so I think maybe a good way to think about that is, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a repenting sinner. And it's repentance in the sense of not re-asking for salvation. That's a one-time issue of regeneration. But as a continuous growing process, right? So sanctification begins at regeneration. So Romans chapter 6, Paul lays this out, right? He says that we're slaves to sin before conversion. We're, we're slaves either way. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ, right? So before conversion, we're slaves to sin. We do what we want to do and what we want to sin, and we'll chase that every time, right? And yet in that, we see this union to Christ in death and resurrection. Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And from that, we are no longer slaves of sin. This is verse 18 of chapter 6. Um, and no longer under law, but we're under grace, right? Which means that I can say no to sin and I can say yes to God, right? So we, uh, this is this, this battle that we have, that we have this capacity through the Spirit to be able to do that. Whereas before, we would never say no because we wouldn't want to say no in that. And so we see the struggle take place in our lives, right? So sanctification begins at regeneration. But there's also this growth, right, that we see through life as well and all throughout our lives. So first or second Corinthians, Paul says, and we who, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit, right? This is the work of the spirit in that. Or he says in Philippians, Paul says that brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward uh, in Christ Jesus. So this growth, once again, through our lives, there should be some trajectory upward in that as well. Um, and this sanctification, once again, starts to generate regeneration, grows through life, and then eventually we'll see this perfect holiness take place. That sanctification, this process will stop at death, and then we get into this issue, we'll talk about this in a bit, of glorification as well. So First John, for example, it says, uh, John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but... We know that when he appears, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Or Paul says in Philippians 3, that who by the spirit that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Right. Um, and that's, once again, this issue of um, sanctification. This is this process that's being, we're being made in that. And yet at the end, at this, at our at death, um, we will be glorified. We will be made like him and we will see him. This kind of, um, this sort of mysterious 
um, mystical relationship that we have, not a mystical sense of sort of occultic sense, but this mystical sense of we will see him for as he is. Friends, I have no idea what that will ultimately be like. Like, what will God look like and how will we ultimately be made like him? God's spirit, how can we see him? If you ever read Jonathan Edwards, he talks about this idea too. Like, how can we see God, right? What would that be like? And who better than Edwards to talk about that, right? And Edwards talks about this issue, this, this mystical union where our souls will see him perfectly for who he is, right? In all of his glory. And we ultimately will be made into the image in conformity to Christ, right? Uh, that's never completed in this life. That will be completed at the end in glorification. So friends, there's also lies in this, some, um, some lies about sanctification too that we want to look at. And every church that you've probably been a part of, or at least Christians that you've known, have probably fallen into. You may have. I have at some point. Right? fall into some of these lies that hinder us when it comes to sanctification. So I think that's important to look at, too. Not just what it is, but what are some lies about sanctification that we want to be really careful of? These are guardrails that we want to put up in our Christian life. Um, and so some of these lies can take, the form of, take this kind of form, right? So <clears throat> one of the lies is, I can do all this myself. Right? I can get cocky. Um, and I can therefore get deceived by my own self-righteousness. Uh, and when I do that, ultimately, I, that will lead to defeat and some sort of discouragement along the way, right? The, kind of the fancy word for this is called activism, right? I can do all this myself. I don't need God in all this. I can take care of it. And you and I both know that never leads to a good place, right? No, nor is that anywhere seen in the scriptures as well. But the Lord is, is working out this salvation in our lives, right? Another lie that we see, maybe you've heard of this, there's actually a phrase that goes with this, right? Is that I don't have to do anything, which is the opposite of the first one. The first one is I can do this all by myself. The second lie is I don't have to do anything at all, right? So you've heard the phrase, let go and let God, right? You may have heard those two things before. This is sometimes referred to as quietism. Um, and once again, we see that, we don't see that carried out in scripture either. So a good place to go back and look at that would be like Philippians chapter two. I've mentioned that verse a few times, Philippians two, where Paul makes that point really clear that to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, right? So we see those two things happening at the same time. So one lie is I can do it by myself. Another lie is I don't have to do anything. A third lie is I can't do this. Right. And that's a terrible place to be, too, because then we become super discouraged. And if we're not careful, we stop fighting sin in our lives. Right. So if I end up here with that, I may never want to try to, to move out of that. I just may stay here or worse. I may get further down in that. Um, a fourth thing is that I, I can do this perfectly. Right? I can live out my life perfectly. Um, and sometimes this is referred to as, as legalism, right? So I, I, can, I can carry out to the law perfectly, and I will try to do that. And that also ends in discouragement. Friends, every one of these lies, as a good litmus test, always ends in discouragement in some way, 
because we can't do these things, right? Even though we try to, right? I can do this perfectly. Um, and of all my, I'll just confess this, of all my, uh, of all the things that I've listed so far, this is the one that I have the greatest propensity toward. I can try, I try to do things perfectly. Um, and then when that doesn't happen, I get super discouraged, right? And that may be, it may be you as well. A good place to look for in, in a source of encouragement in that, once again, is to read through 1 John. That would be a great place to, to go back and look at that. If you fall into the temptation that you think you can do this Christian life perfectly, read 1 John. Uh, and then the last, last point of, this, uh, the, of these lies is it doesn't matter. Like, who cares, <laughs> right? Um, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Do what you want to do, right? Sometimes this is referred to as antinomianism, um, which is a lie, right? Um, and it speaks to the fact that this, we don't have to, we're not under the law anymore. We're all under grace, and we can kind of do what you'd like to do, right? And yet in all this, as we kind of, as we kind of exit out this, just a reminder that a, that a truly um, godly person understands ultimately that he is no longer under the bondage of the law. And yet uh, the Christian still loves God's law. He meditates. We're commanded to do that, to meditate on it day and night. Because therein he discovers what's pleasing to God and uh, what's reflective of God's character in this. So sanctification is important. And this is where you and I are in this constant struggle and battle with this. This is why um, as church members, it's so important in our lives to be invested in one another's lives. And friends, I say that hypocritically because that's one of the hardest things for me to do is to invest my life and to have other people into my life because I like to keep things private. And that's part of my personality and part of my sinful nature too is that I don't want people to know what's going on right there. And yet, this is the great thing about how God has constructed the local church and our membership in that, that we are invested in one another's lives, and that you and I can be an encouragement to a fellow believer to not stay here, but to keep progressing toward toward sanctification and toward toward Christ as well. That's the great that's the great joy and job that we have as church members to do that. That we're a part of that, right? Yes, it's the spirit working most certainly. But it's also he's working in and through us in that too. So, number number 4. So if God is sanctifying those that he's elected and he's justified and adopted them, which is that chain again, then can a believer ultimately fall away from their justified state? Can I lose my salvation? This is very much a question. You can see how these, these are connected in this way. Like, if I'm here, what if I just keep dropping down? What if I never go back up? <laughs> right? Uh, and you and I have known people, perhaps, of like that, who've made a profession of faith and may have had great joy in that profession, and maybe five years later, ten years later, two months later, they're not only not following Christ, they're denouncing Christ and his work. Like, they only say they're not just not a believer, they say they don't believe at all, um, and they regret any of it. So how do we put all this together um, in this, right? 
So sometimes this is referred to as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, which is a good term. I kind of like the term preservation of the saints. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm saying that not because I don't think that the scriptures clearly teach perseverance. We are to persevere. That's clearly laid out in the scriptures. Sometimes I think this doctrine of perseverance, it's again, if we're not careful, it puts it back all onto us. And we are to persevere. But friends, the reason that we persevere in the saints is because God has preserved us. And there's the working of the Spirit in that. Okay. So what do these terms mean? So perseverance of the saints simply means this. And I'm going to come back and kind of unpack this definition a little bit that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's uh, power and will remain Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who remain Christian until the end or as Christians in the end will have been truly born again. So in other words, this true Christians cannot lose their salvations. And I take you back to that phrase or that passage or that verse in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And I said to you, when we first started this, this is an elliptical, this is an elliptical statement, right? It's assumed, there's a, there's a word here that's assumed here, of all. All those of whom God foreknew, he predestined. And all those he predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justified. And all those that he justified, he glorified. Notice what happens once again if we put some in there. Right. If you, some he foreknew, he predestined. And some he predestined, he also called. And some that he called, well, some that he uh, justified. And there's no, there's, there's no comfort in that. Right? And yet Paul is reaffirming this very point that God's work will be his work, and he'll carry that out to its completion as well. Okay? This is this perseverance. So really quick. Pulling apart this definition, which is kind of a bit wordy in that. So number one is all who are truly born again will persevere till the end. So I know this is a somewhat controversial in different denominations as well. But this, once again, perseverance is clearly borne out in the scriptures. So just read through some passages that clearly speak to this. So, for example, John chapter 6. Jesus says this. Right? This, is not a, this is not a theologian from church history. This is Christ, the incarnate Son of God saying this, and he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the certainty of that language, right? Jesus will lose none or no one, right? Um, Jesus makes this emphatic statement that he will, he will, there's the emphasis, he will raise up Christians on the last day. It's not he hopes. It's not as if it goes well, if things work out. Uh, it's not as, well, if you hang in there and don't lose your salvation, we'll try to work this out in the end. We'll try to figure this out. No, he says that God is making, this is God's promise, and he is working this out. He will do this. You can't get more emphatic than that, right? 
later in the Gospels, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Again, there's no ambiguity here, right? There's no uh, leaning one way or the other. Um, Jesus is emphatic here about what he will do and how he will do it, right? We even see further evidence in this, of, of this doctrine because God has placed a seal on us as well, right? So this is in back to Ephesians where it says, in him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you've believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. It goes back to that ancient idea that the king would have, when he would write a letter, he'd have a signet ring that uh, they would drop wax on the, on the envelope and seal it, and the king would take his signet ring and press into the wax to make the seal of the king, that this is official, right? Not anyone can do this. Not everyone has this ring. Only the Father can do this. Paul says that you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee, not maybe, but it's the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, right? So only or all who are truly born again will persevere to the end. But the other part of this definition really quick is that only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. Um, so, Paul says in, in, to the church, of, he writes in Colossians, he says that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body in order to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Friend, friends, God does preserve the Christian in his faith. Right? This is the whole point of these passages. So perseverance, to persevere in the faith, is really a sign that you are a believer, right? That, he, that God is preserving you in this way. Um, the third part of this is that those who finally fall away may give some external signs of conversion, right? So I think a good thing to pause here really quick is to make this distinction. Uh, and the distinction is this that there are people who make professions of faith and there are people who have possession of faith, right? So all people who have possession of saving faith, yes, must profess saving faith. We defined that last week, saving faith. Friends, you and I also know that, that people, there are people who profess saving faith that may not actually have or have or possess saving faith. And there's the difference between those two things, the profession versus the possession. And you and I want the possession of saving faith, right? And nowhere is this clearer than in Jesus's parable of the sower of the seeds, okay? So Jesus says that some, in this parable, that some people are like seeds sown on, a rocky, on rocky places, and they hear the word and it, at once received it with joy, but since they have not, they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes um, from the world, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds, are, uh, are sown among thorns. They hear the word, 
and the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of other things come in and they choke it out, making it unfruitful. So Jesus goes through like four different types of soil here, right? And only the last one he says, the good soil, that's what will produce fruit, right? And so clearly we see those first three, that people who may make a profession of faith but may not have a possession of faith. This is why Peter commands us to make your calling and election sure, right? Are you in the faith in that? Um, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. It's one of the scariest passages in the New Testament, right? That, once again, people are saying, Lord, Lord, people who are making professions of faith, but don't have a possession of saving faith. And he says, he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And ultimately in the end. And then finally in this, John 1, or 1 John chapter 2, sums up this, this idea as well, where it says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But, they, but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. So I think John here is clear on that as well. Another two places to look at, and I'll, I'll take a question here or two if you have some, especially about this, is to think through the life of Judas and the life of Peter. They're very actually pretty, pretty parallel. Both denied Christ. Peter cursed Christ. And yet we see clearly Jesus did not pray for Judas. Jesus prayed for Peter, right? Um, and in the end, Peter is the one that, that we see that perseveres. Because he had this, he, he mustered all this on his own? No, because the Lord prayed for him, right? I think that's pretty important to look at. Okay, pause there for a second. Question, comment, before we wrap this up. You should have an objection. Let me give you an objection. Um, the objection comes in Hebrews chapter 6. And what do you do with that? Um, I don't know if you've ever read that um, passage before, but for a lot of people, this is, a, this is a tough one. So Hebrews chapter 6 says this, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Right? So oftentimes people who say that you can lose your salvation, that it's not this perseverance will, will actually come to this passage. It's not just this passage in, in, in the book of Hebrews. There's actually, um, uh, three of these that's that's connected together in the book of Hebrews as well. So what if we do something like that? I mean, I just laid out what clearly Jesus says, what was Paul saying in this, right? And none will be lost. But once again, I think context is everything in these passages, right? So scripture, once again, clearly shows that God will not forsake those he's called. All those he's called, all those he will justify, right? And yet scripture also gives us clear warnings once again, to make our calling and election sure. Second Peter, right? 
And yet it seems in this passage of Hebrews that the author is referring to Christians who fall away or apostate. And when they do that, they can't be brought back. So what do we do with this, right? Well, I think if we think about this a little bit, this may, and by the way, we want to read this for the whole context of it as well, because if we understand this, we read it in its context, we have to understand this may be sort of an empty set here by the, by the writer of Hebrews. And what I mean by that is the writer is being hypothetical, right? And I, I say that because of verse 9 in chapter 6, because verse 9 alludes um, to the fact when the author of the book of Hebrews says this, that even though we speak like this or in this manner, in other words, he's using this sort of as an um, as a, a sense of, of, of a hypothetical. And in that, we are confident, this writer says, we're confident of better things in your case, things concerning salvation. So it seems as though the author of Hebrews is making a strong warning to hold firm to the end, um, to the very end, as he does. And we find out from that, that in the end, it's the one that the Lord is the one who's holding us in this way. Okay? That's pretty important to consider. All right. Last two. Last two. We'll, we'll go through a bit faster on these. Um, number five is on the handout is the, in this chain of events is death, right? Um, this is the next to the last stage in the series. This is the issue of death. And this is one that's obviously not treated in a light manner because none of us are without the experience of death and, and, and our, the loss of our family in some way. Um, that we've all experienced this. If not, then we will, right? And at the same time, it's important, it's important for us to view death rightly as the scripture um, sees it. I think of all the questions that I get from students, this one is the one that's probably I get the most. Like, what happens at death? Where do we go? What happens to a believer? What happens to an unbeliever, right? Um, and so that's, that's pretty important to consider what does happen at death, right? So for the Christian, death is a consequence, once again, of our spiritual um, or our sinful nature, as we all are, right, living in this fallen world. And yet Christ, once again, has borne the punishment of that on the cross. Our, our entire penalty for sin has been paid for by Christ. So we, should, we shouldn't consider our own death or the deeds of other fellow Christians, believers, some sort of punishment from this. We all go through this, right? Paul says, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is Romans 8. And instead, we will have... Um, we will have appropriate, we have grief for our brothers and sisters in Christ who dies. Um, and yet that sorrow should be mixed with joy and hope as well. There's a good place to look at this is to consider how Paul views this, how he views death. Maybe it's to think, kind of recalibrate. Like none of us look forward. Let me put it this way. I don't know if I want to speak for everybody, so I'll just speak for myself here. I'm not fearful of death. I'm fearful of the process of dying, <laughs> right? And that's brought to bear no more clearly than in this pandemic, right? You see people running to all kinds of saviors to try to save them from the coronavirus. And they're afraid of both death and dying. But for the Christian, yeah, it's natural that we would be fearful of the process of dying. Like for a lot of you, I see your wonderful faces, you're young, you're healthy, it's probably a long way away. Um, 
But at some point, we will all die, unless the Lord tarries. And we're fearful, at least I am, what that's going to look like. What's the process of it? Not the end product of it, but what it's going to look like when that happens. So that's, that's something I think we share in that. But notice how Paul looks at death. This is the same guy. Yes, he's making the argument, Romans 5. As sin entered into the world, so did death, right? Death, spiritual, physical. But notice what, he, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, how he thinks about death. And Paul says that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, he says, I desire to depart to be with Christ. And then notice what he says here in this departing. I want to depart, die, and be with Christ, which is far, which is better by far. And yet it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then obviously Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. I, I bring out this passage because I think sometimes, at least I do, I don't want to speak for you. We have, I have the tendency to view the difference between life and death as the difference between good and bad. And that's not Paul's perspective. Paul sees the difference between life and death as the difference not between good and bad, but between good and better. And I don't know if you've thought of death that way before, or at least life, but to think of it in those terms that Paul's saying, between good and better. It's better. Um, that would be better by far to die and to be with Christ. But it's good that I remain here, right? And to think of our lives in that way. The last one is this, um, is this doctrine of glorification. It's this final step in redemption. Uh, and that will happen when Christ um, returns and raises the dead, right? So a good place to kind of meditate on this, I leave you on this, is when Paul writes to the church at Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Like, what would that be like to have these resurrected bodies? Um, and there's probably no more concentrated teaching on that than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul relates this to a mystery. He says, I tell you a mystery, you shall be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That there some, some, seems to be some sort of continuity that we see um, happening here, right? that there is this hope that we will be made into this glorious, uh, we, may, we have this glorified body that will be so imperishable, but raised imperishable. So brothers and sisters, I leave you here. I know it's time, time to go, but I will leave you with that to think on that this week as well. Are you eagerly expecting the hope of Christ's return um, when you will be reunited, not just with your body, but with what you'll be like Christ, right? And I think that's a good thing to think about, right? It's a good thing to think about, especially given the fact of where we find ourselves today in this pandemic, right? That this doctrine of redemption reminds us not to be afraid of something that can destroy the body, Jesus says, but actually we should be more afraid of something, or should I say someone, who can destroy both body and soul as well. That's what ultimately that we should be fearful of and face. And thanks be to God that we don't have to be fearful of that because we have an elder brother, right? Christ himself, who has done this work through the spirit 
and has applied this uh, great work of redemption um, to our lives. So I'm super thankful for all of you. Thank you for sticking with me these last uh, few weeks. Once again, I'm very grateful to uh, be able to teach this with, uh, with Colton. I'm really looking forward to hearing his. Before we go, Colton, anything you want to say about the doctrine of the church um, that's coming up? Anything you'd like to say about that? This is the other one I just joined. Um, this is uh, systematic theology. Okay. Got it. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, um, uh, just get excited, get hyped. Uh, 8.30 a.m. next week, um, we are going to be doing two weeks, Doctrine of the Church, one week eschatology. The first topic uh, I have thought about a lot. The second one, not quite as much. So, uh, yeah, I just pray to have wisdom to be able to know what to put in, not put in, um, and uh, that it would just be encouraging. But we'll think about everything from what is a church to how do churches relate to one another and uh, everything in between. So it should be uh, should be a fun a fun time. Come ready because we'll probably just hit the ground hit the ground run. I'll probably make book make recommendations as we go to sort of time to to different topics. So yeah, uh, yeah just. Uh, Get uh get pumped up. And I'm glad that we get to do it on a day that Lord willing we're actually gonna be able to meet because it would just be awkward otherwise. <laughs> this you know, is we'll do this in uh, two years or whatever. So yeah, pray for me that it would be uh helpful for me and helpful for y'all. Yeah. Well, especially the doctrine of eschatology, because Colt and I will take Terry's position on that. So whatever it's all as Terry's position. I can see Terry. <laughs> I can just see how uh, how much chagrin he will have for this. Sorry, Terry. <laughs> all right. Well, let me pray. We'll get, uh, let you guys go. Lord, thank you for, um, once again, thank you for the day. Thank you that um, you are our Heavenly Father, or that we can cry out to you, we can call to you, or that you have adopted us, and you've given us an identity in Christ, and you've given us an inheritance. I pray, Lord, for each person this morning that's joined in, that that would be a fresh reminder for them, maybe even a new reminder or even a new thought for them. But it would be a source of great encouragement to them this week. I, Lord, I pray for Brad. Uh, I pray for the, how the service will go this morning. I pray that you'd encourage him. Um, and I pray, Father, that your word and your name will be glorified. And Lord, we pray these things, and we ask these in the name of Christ. Amen.